You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Happy Father's Day. As a father of two, the quest to be perfect, to be the perfect father, continues to evade me. It's difficult. It's difficult, and I fall short constantly. Okay? Now, I know that though I'll never be the perfect dad for my collective memory of my relationship with my own father, but also with the other relationships I know of between father and son, I've gathered a few insights to maybe kind of help us on our way. Now, this is this is not my sermon, but this is something I do want to address here. Now, these insights, I hope, will kind of lead us not towards perfection, because we know that's impossible, but at least towards godliness. And uh, not just as a father, but as a man. Amen? To all the men, amen? Godliness. So firstly, I think an important thing is this, and I've learned is never to be too busy for our families. Now, having gone through grade school myself, obviously I know the burden and I know the chaos that typically fills any given day uh, of a student's life. I, I, here's the thing. I, I think the guilt of not being there for my kids, it tempts me to simply kind of buy something for them. Have you parents, you, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? We kind of feel guilty and so we're tempted to buy something for them. And so typically I call these things toys of guilt, Right? I say, you know, I, maybe I missed out on, like, for instance, my daughter's preschool, like, father-daughter, ice cream, social, whatever, extravaganza. And, and sure enough, I go there late, and my daughter, my teacher says, your daughter was sulking in the corner because you didn't come. I'm like, how dare you, first of all, right? But, so I feel bad, and, and I'll try and make it up, and I'll tell my daughter, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. She's like, I was so lonely. I was like, oh, my gosh. And I was like, you know what? I'll take you. Where do you want to go? She's like, oh. Toys R Us. You know, so I'll take her Toys R Us, and again, I'll just fill her toy basket filled with toys of guilt. And, and I don't want to do that. And I know we as parents, we don't want to do that either, but nor do I want my kids to know that my life isn't with responsibilities, right? That, that yes, we are busy. So what I've learned is from this one pastor who blogged about his father, that whenever his father felt, now you don't have to do this, obviously, but whenever his father felt that he didn't have enough time to spend with him, He'd make sure to schedule in an intentional time later that week. In fact, that father took out his son out of school. In other words, they skipped school for one day. They headed down. This was, I think, in uh, Huntington Beach, uh, Southern California. They went down to the beach to surf. They ate some good food, and they just talked, father and son. They just spent, some, they spent the afternoon, their evening together. And then so when they went back to school the next day, the teacher said, why weren't you here yesterday? The son said, well, my absence should be excused because my father, he took me out to hang out with me. And they said, that's not a valid excuse. We're marking you unexcused. And honestly, the dad said when he found out, he goes, you know what? This is the best reason for an absence. I'm so happy I've taken you out. And so we don't ever want to be too busy to spend time with our kids. But secondly, I think as men, as fathers, we want to be Bible men, Right? We won't be men of the Bible. I want my kids to know that there is no other greater treasure to me than the words that are found here in this book. I want my children to know that I will forever be a student and a disciple of the Word. Amen? Thirdly, I want to be a man who praises God all the time. 
who praises God all the time. I know of two things in my father's life that could evoke any emotion in him. The first is God. The second are the Redskins. But even the skins were a distant second compared to his enjoyment of who God is and what he's done. See, here's the thing. All throughout my young and teenage and, and young adult and adult life, all throughout my life, I have never, never once wondered how my dad felt about God. I've never once wondered if, God, if my dad loved God. It was praises were always on his lips. He was always enjoying and basking in the amazing grace of God. So I, too, want my children to know that about me. Fourthly, I want to be a father who's always cheering my children on. You know, when you have kids, you immediately, the moment that they're born, you immediately start thinking of who they'll be, what they'll do, what kind of skills or natural giftings. Like, for instance, my son is only nine and a half, almost ten months old, and I got to say, you know, he starts standing up. He starts holding on to things earlier than my, than my daughter Ada did. And immediately, what do I think? Oh, he's going to play for the Washington Redskins. It's just, that's, just, that's just his fate. He's going to do that. Like, what, what nine-month child can walk like that? He's, he's amazing. We automatically have all these things of, you know, where their gifting's at. And, and what I need to do is remind myself that they may very well never fit into my mold of expectations. Right? That's the reality. My job, however, as a father, is to guide them without fearfully clinging on to them. My job is to always cheer them on to follow Christ anywhere they're at, in anything they do, and anywhere they're called, even if it means being far from me. So whether it's a, a garbage man or the president of the United States, my job as their father is to cheer them on to do what they do as long as they love Christ with all their hearts, right? Fifthly, I want my children to know that I have a real walk with God too. That I have a real walk. I want them to know that it was God I was addicted to, not my phone, not my job, not my work, not the TV, not books, not even ministry, but God that I was addicted to. It was God that I loved more than anything else. I want them to see me absorbed in prayer, saturated with love, and to see me serving my people and my church and all his wonderful, wonderful services. I want my children to see that I'm not in love with money, but I'm in love with giving. That, that they would understand that home wasn't a place where they would feel judged or nervous, but that home was a place of joy, a lot of peace, a lot of honesty. I want them to know that home was where Jesus was. Okay? Sixthly, I want to teach theology to my kids outside of the church. I want to teach theology to my kids. Now, I remember when I was younger, even if I was outside and I was cutting grass or I was with my dad for whatever reason, my father would always bring some sort of connection from the outside, the natural world, to God. He'd say, man, look at the sky. Is it big or small? I said, it's big. And he says, yeah, God is big too. And God, he loves you, and his love for you is bigger. Do you know how much God loves you? I was like, really, God loves me? Yeah, God loves you so much that he saved you. Do you know how blessed you are? Now, I didn't know it, but many, many years later, as I thought and as I studied about certain doctrines, especially the doctrine of election, I came to realize just how much I was loved by God, that I was saved by God. See, all that talk that I had with my father helped me understand that doctrine even more easily. Theological education, it really needs to start in our backyards as you're raking leaves together, as you're throwing the pigskin together, as you're cutting grass together. That's where it starts. All right, man? Amen? Seventh, 
I want my children to know that loving one another was possible even when it wasn't easy. Turn to your neighbor and say this, it's not easy loving you. <laughs> when I got married, I read this book that said, we often give 90% to work and 10% to home and family. And it says, we need to stop bringing home our leftovers. And that made sense. And while that made sense, though, in my life I've come to realize that it's not about what percent you give or don't give, because even if you only have 1% left when you come home, even if you only have 1% left to give or energy, let's, here's the thing, we are called regardless to love our families. We're called regardless to support and to encourage and to speak life and truth. We don't love just because we have energy. We don't, we're not called to love just because we have time to love. No, we love our children. We love our wives because God has called us to love them even if we're tired, even if we're stressed. But just as importantly, it's God who will be the one to strengthen us to love them even when we're running on fumes. So it's not about 50% here and 50% there. God's saying, regardless, even if you have 0% and you're running on fumes, you are called to love even when it's difficult. So I want my children, and I believe all the fathers here want, to know, want their children to know that loving people shouldn't depend on our circumstances. It shouldn't depend on just how you're feeling that day. It's simply by the grace of God that he gives you the strength to love. So love even when it's difficult. And lastly, I want my children to know how much I love the church. I don't want my kids growing up thinking that just because dad's a pastor or just because dad spends a lot of time at church, just like many of you guys who are serving, who are plugged in here at church, that that's the reason why I love the church. Time doesn't always mean love, but love does mean time. I want them to know that church is a place, because I love it, is a place where I get to be. That church is a place in all its glorious imperfections. It's still a place where we can grow and love and be loved. I want them to know that church is a place where it was okay to not be okay. And that while the problems of church politics and church relationships can be extremely raw and sometimes extremely painful, that it's still a place where God's grace leads his people towards joy, towards peace, and towards compassion and freedom. This is church. And I want my kids to know that. I don't want them to think, oh, I can't be myself now here, now that I'm at church because I'm a PK. No. I want them to know this is where they can be themselves. This is a path that I and many of us are on. It is by no means a path that we've completed, and I don't think it's a path that we ever will complete. But it's a journey that I want to journey with all the SSCC men here. To all the men here, will you say Amen. Happy Father's Day to you all, to all the current fathers, to all the soon-to-be fathers, to all the who by God's grace may one day become a father. Happy Father's Day to you all. Happy Father's Day to our Heavenly Father, who will always be forever good and faithful. Amen. God is good, right? Turn to your neighbor and say, let's begin. Okay, so I'm not really sure how to segue into this chapter from that, because this is a really tough passage. It was a tough passage to prepare for. It's going to be a tough passage for you to listen to. And it's a tough passage for us to simply comment on. But the Lord has revealed two points of truth for all of us to hear. My first point is this. is that God, he wants to separate us from the world. God, he wants to separate us from the world. That's our first point. Now, just as a few chapters before, you might notice that this chapter doesn't mention the Lord once. 
Like I said before, where Scripture doesn't uh, say that necessarily, you'll likely hear his voice even more clearly, loudly from the silence. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Okay, in all that we're reading here, in all that our sister beautifully read, all 31 verses, what is God doing? How is God working behind the scenes? Just like the book of Esther, even though God's not mentioned once, we see in her story God's providence. We see God is in control. In other words, he's sovereign over everything. And not only that, throughout the entire Bible, I find that the absence of any mention of God is typically done to point out how God is working in the midst of what? Of wickedness. When life is difficult, when situations are dire, and when God, his name at least, is absent. That you typically see God working in there. Yes, even when there's rampant wickedness, even when life seems out of control, even when the bad guys seem to prevail, God has never once lost control, but he is working. So what is God telling us in the silence from this chapter? What's his agenda? He's telling his people to be his people, which means that we must not be people of the world, but rather we need to be separate from the world. Turn to your neighbor and say, be separate from the world. You see, in this chapter, you'll see a massive effort from the people of the world to try to unite God's people with themselves. It's a lot of, hey, believe what we believe. Trust in what we trust. Do what we do. It'll be for your own good. It'll help everyone out. Tolerate what we tolerate. Hate what we hate and love what we love. And yet the result we'll see later on is exactly the opposite. So we know something of Jacob. He has a desire to be united closely to the Canaanites of Shechem. That's interesting, right? Jacob, of all, of all people, of all patriarchs, man, this guy, he actually wants to be united closely to the people of Shechem. Remember from last week how he intentionally settled here rather than pressing on one more day's journey to Bethel where God wanted him to actually be? Why did Jacob stop short? Why did he stop in Shechem and not in Bethel? Because Jacob was still in love with the world. He was still in love with the world. When he saw Shechem, he saw cha-ching, dollar signs. He saw opportunity. He saw lavish living. He saw fun worldliness that was just too enticing. So he bought property and he settled down. Jacob, he justified his move. He justified his compromise by thinking, you know what? I'm done struggling. I've gone through hell and back. I'm done being a wandering stranger. I'm just sick and tired of how my life was spent all that time. You know what? I don't want to be like my grandfather Abraham. I don't want to be just wandering, going from place to place. No, I want to settle down. I want to just, I want to establish my roots and quit this pilgrimage. But here's the thing. It's not the moving that's wrong. It's where he moved. Location, 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 right? Shechem was the wrong place. In fact, in Genesis 12, Jacob's grandfather Abraham first arrived in the land of Canaan. He came to this place called Shechem. And it was here that God promised, hey, I'm going to give this land to you one day. Then in chapter 13, Abraham came back again. And it was here where he had an argument with his, with his uh, nephew Lot. And Lot where he eventually headed off into Sodom. But again, God reiterated his promise to give this land to Abraham. But in that promise, God made it a point for Abraham to keep himself separated from the people. He's like, I'm going to give you this land. But through this entire journey, throughout your entire life, don't get too close with these people. Separate yourself from them. And so in Genesis chapter 24, when he sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac, he made the servant promise, hey, 
Look for a wife for my son, but whatever you do, do not have him marry a Canaanite woman. Then in Genesis chapter 27, Jacob's own mom had the same concern. She goes, oh my goodness, if Jacob takes a wife from one of these local women here, women of this land, my life would, would be not worth living. And then later on, as if you know, Jacob really didn't get it, Isaac directly goes to his son and says, look, don't marry a Canaanite woman, right? So what does Jacob do? He settled in one of the biggest cities of Canaan. He bought some land. He's now a Shechem resident. Imagine that, right? After all those warnings, after all the pleas, after all that God has said about the people of Canaan, and here Jacob goes not just on the skirts or the fringes of territory. No, he goes right in to enemy territory. And why did he do it? Was it for evangelistic reasons? Did he want to just go and be the salt and light to the people there and say, oh my goodness, God is holy and he wants you to repent. Was it anything like that? Was it for him to be a light to the people who are just shrouded in darkness? Was it to bring destruction to the temple idolatry and all the wickedness that was going around to bring salvation and freedom? No. He went and why? Because he wanted to be with the people. He wanted to be like the people. And he was going for the people. So Jacob, he had a teenage daughter named Dinah. Now after reading this passage, I realized the wisdom in my parents and also in my in-laws for never allowing their daughters to see daylight outside of school and church. So Dinah heads out. She heads out the door to see and hang out with some of her girlfriends, presumably to hang out at the nearby Canaanite cafe called Caffeinite. It's Father's Day. I had to say dad's joke. Anyways, so she goes out to check out the scene, maybe even scope out, scope out some of the Canaanite hotties, right? Pretty much all the kids of Shechem, what they were doing, knowing their culture, let's just say it wasn't the holiest of places that they were probably at, probably not doing the holiest of things either. Now, you got to remember something about Canaanites, and let me give you a little backdrop, okay? They did whatever they wanted to do. These guys were bad. The deities they worshipped, you know, at least other, other deities and stuff like that, they'll say, you know, be, be loving and be peaceful and all this stuff, whatever. These deities that these Canaanites worshipped, they had no moral code whatsoever. They had no moral law whatsoever by which the people were to live by. The social aspect of Canaanite life was also incredibly destructive because much of their culture was based on sexuality, prostitution, wasn't just something they'd seen. It was rampant. It was, it was widely accepted because to them, it was an act of worship to their God of fertility. Pornographic images, that was all just, everyone did that. Everyone saw that. It was everywhere. It was abundant. They were into every possible sexual perversion, included beast, including bestiality. And they also had very low opinion of the human life where they were willing to prostitute themselves and even murder by sacrificing their own children to guarantee a good harvest. They didn't care about life. They didn't care about their kids. They didn't care about their bodies. They didn't care about the family unit either. Things like love was replaced with lust. Purity was replaced with promiscuity. Peace was replaced with hostility. Security was replaced with entitlement. In fact, this was a society where all they focused on was prosperity. All they focused on was material wealth and human pleasure. All that was top priority for them. They didn't care about anything or anyone else. And should anyone get in my way, oh, I'll kill you. 
I'll do anything I can to make sure I get mine. I'm happy and I get my happiness. And God, he said, I hate this. I hate every aspect of who they are, of what they believe, and how they live. God says, I want you to have nothing to do with these people. And sadly, it sounds a lot like the world that we live in today, doesn't it? So what did Jacob do? His teenage daughter was about to go out, live it up, because that's what the kids were doing. Dinah heads out, and Jacob says nothing. Nothing. Not a word. Why? Because Jacob was a bit preoccupied, too. See, Daddy dear was preoccupied because he was busy trying to fit in as well. So the story goes like this. The ruler's son named Shechem notices Dinah. Dinah then notices Shechem and realizes, OMG, this is the city's prince. This is the prince. This is a Prince Harry checking me out right now. This is crazy. What 14, 15-year-old girl wouldn't get excited about that? So she kind of talks, hangs out. He seduces her. He doesn't care how young she is. He doesn't care if she's someone's daughter. All he cares about are his urges. All he cares about is satisfying his lust. So he sees her. He lusts after her. He seduces her. And then he rapes her. And after he raped her, Shechem sends word to his daddy, Hamer, with instructions. I kind of like this girl. Get me this girl, please. Now Jacob, who's been wanting, wanting to be a part of this town, suddenly gets this incredibly warm welcome. But what we need to understand is that behind the work of Satan, behind every sexual encounter, behind every rape, behind all these other horrible sins and atrocities, is not just the sin itself, but it's a power play. See, Hamor and Shechem, they didn't just want to bring Dinah into the family by marrying her. No, they wanted to bring Jacob's entire family into the community and assimilate them. It was to remove anything that set them apart from the Shechemites. It was a power play. I don't want you to be considered God's people anymore. I don't want you to have this influence anymore. I don't want you to have this distinction anymore. I want you to be as bland as possible. I want you to be as vanilla as possible, as tasteless, as flavorless, as dark as we are. You see, according to verse 9, Hamor wasn't just interested in getting a wife for his son. No, he says this, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. See, it wasn't just one marriage Hamor wanted. He wanted an entire intermarriage of peoples. That's why in verse 16, the deal the two families struck was this. Let's be one people. Let's be one people. You know what's scary? For us as Christians, for those of you who are followers of Christ, attacks on us will never be some big frontal, I want to take over your life type of attack from the enemy. His attacks are always subtle. It starts with small things. Think about that small thing in your life. What is that small little gap or hole that you have permitted Satan to attack you with? Maybe for some, and I've heard people say this, for them it was happy hour. Maybe it's a little bit of Netflix, which soon balloons into a nightly obsession. Maybe it starts with one Tinder date, and now it's become, I slept with several people. These attacks are never just some big, loud attack. They're always subtle, and you're never fully aware of it until it's too late. Jacob and the leaders of Shechem, they had for some reason the same vision to intermingle, to intermarry, become one people, stand united together, then they'll be stronger, richer, and have a brighter future. That was the promise that Jacob heard from the enemy. And it sounded good. You see, Shechem, 
was a really good place for Jacob's finances. It was a really good place and prosperous place for his business endeavor and outlook. But you know what? It was a horrible place, a disastrous place for his family and for his spiritual well-being. You got to ask yourself sometimes, man, this is an advantage to going and doing this and being there. But you got to ask yourself, will this help me grow closer to Christ? Will this help me grow closer to the Lord? Will doing this, choosing this type of lifestyle, pursuing this ambition, will it also help my family grow, draw near to God? So what happened? Well, word got back to Jacob, and he didn't know what to do. But his sons got mad. So the brothers, they plot, and they told the men in their town that they could only intermarry if they get circumcised. So Shechem being the hot topic there, and all the men pretty much honored and loved him, he persuades the men of his town that, hey, this will be to your advantage. You'll make money. You'll have more business opportunities and so on. So when all the men of Shechem were at the height of their pain from the operation, from circumcision, Simeon and Levi, they took the swords, they went around, and they killed all the men. Then the sons looted the town. They took all the women, all the children as slaves. So what happens in verse 30? Jacob says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We got to ask ourselves this now. Why is the story even told? God, he wants us to be separated from the world. God will use whatever means necessary, even the wickedness of sinful men, to make sure his sovereign will is accomplished. Now get this. When this story was written down, the people of Israel, they've been wandering the wilderness for how many years? Forty years. And they were just about to enter the promised land. Many of them probably thought, yes, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. I see the promised land now. This is finally over. My previous generation, my parents, they died. They were not permitted. But you know what? By God's grace, I'm entering the promised land. I'm so happy. And they probably thought, it's done now. They could settle in. They can forget about their pilgrimage. They can forget about being aliens, about foreigners. This is my new home. We can settle down and live the good life. But the thing is, even before they enter the land, Moses, he writes this account for them. And then he says, remember Jacob. Remember Jacob when he finally returned to the land that God promised. And he decides, you know what? I'm not going as a missionary. I'm not going as an alien. I'm going to fit in. I'm just going to fit in. And he says, remember Remember the terrible things that happened to Jacob's family. And he says, remember, be holy because God is holy. Let me say this, folks. It's getting harder for us in this day and age, is it not? Aren't you so distracted? It's getting harder. It's getting a lot more difficult. And maybe you're tempted too. I know you are. I'm tempted too. Maybe you're tempted to compromise in the little things. But that's really the point of the story. Satan attacks are always in the little things that soon give way to the bigger compromises. He knows that if he attacks our faith outright, we'll say, what are you talking about? No, 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 no. No, I'm not going to listen to you, Satan. So instead, what does Satan do? He attacks by chipping away at all other things, like our commitment to the church. That church never loved you. That church doesn't accept you. Look at the way you look. Look at the way you dress. Look at the way you behave. The church doesn't want you. You don't fit in. You don't fit in. Or what else? He'll chip away at um, <clears throat> your love for one another. Your life group members, they're just, they're just tolerating you. <sighs> You're such a mission field for them. 
they're tired of your constant incessant talking and your annoying problems and all that stuff. That's how Satan chips away. But not only that, more apparent these days is that he chips away at our commitment to the parts of God's word, to really his whole word. He makes us question what family is. He makes us question what gender is. He makes us question what truth is, what love is, what marriage is, what fatherhood and motherhood is, what church is, who we are, what our purpose is, why we live and why we love, why we do what we do and why we trust in what we trust. It's in all these little things that Satan tries to corner us in. And we become more susceptible to these attacks, to these subtle attacks, especially when we flirt with the world. When you're just more engaged with the things of the world than the things of God. That's why God says, be separate. Be in the world, but not of the world. You know, James chapter 4, verse 4 says, don't you know that the friendship with the world is hatred toward God? John 15, 19 says, if you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. And also in 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You know, as a father, I got to tell you, the weight of this matter rides much more on me. I don't want to do what Jacob did with Dinah. When Dinah left the house, Jacob should have said something. He should have said something, but he wimped out. Dinah was raped. Jacob, he should have done something, but he wimped out. Look, being separate from the world will not be popular with your children. It will not be popular with your future children. In fact, it's probably not popular and being well received right now by you adults. But there's a reason why God asked for his people to be separate. He wants to protect you. He wants to strengthen you. And he wants his people holy for himself because we are his treasured possessions. But it's not only about being separate. We're not called to be separate for the sake of being separate. We're not called to live like monks. You know, a few years ago, there was a, a lady monk. A monk, yes? I don't know. She came in. She knocked on my door. And she said something. And she said, um, hi, how are you? And all this stuff. And I said, oh, hey, you want to come in? Let's talk theology and all this stuff. And she's like, oh, no, I'll stay here. Um, <clears throat> and, I, and I said, she goes, I want to invite you to be a guest speaker at one of our conferences. I was like, uh, elaborate. And she goes, it's, it's all about, it's about unity, about bringing peace from all walks of life and all that stuff. And I said, can I proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you go, and she said, if it means about creating division, separation, and that you're saying that Jesus is the only God, then no. I go, yeah, that would have been it. That would have been my message. And she goes, so why are you so against all these other stuff like that? And I said, well, I don't, I don't live by what man says. I live by what the Bible says. That's my authority. And I said, what's your authority? It's a great Buddha, da, 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 all this stuff, whatever. And, then, <clears throat> and I said, what does that mean for you? And she says, it's to be live, live separate. Because the world is a, is a flesh world is a materialistic world, and we want to be separate, and we want to be pure, because enlightenment means that we get to be pure, and, and so on and so forth. And I said, I see, so it's about being separate, right? And she goes, yes. And I said, um, so why are you here then? What's the point of you coming out to people if, if, if the world is inherently evil? Why are you trying to bring them in? And she said, well, um, she didn't have an answer for that. And she said, it's only all about love. 
I didn't get what, that, what she was saying. And, and she goes, hold on, look, we have to, it's all about being separate from the world. And then immediately, it was so funny because immediately her phone went off. She goes, yes, hello. <laughs> I was like, that's interesting, being connected, right, having technology. Not so, not so really far removed from the world. And I'm not saying this just to make joke of it, but really we, this idea of being separate from the world does not mean that we are to live monastically does not mean that we are to live like Amish people, completely separated away from all this stuff. Why? First of all, that's kind of strange, but not only that, it's unbiblical. So what are we supposed to do in our pursuit of separation? What are we called to do in our pursuit of holiness? And that leads us to our second and last point, and this is it. We as his people are called to reflect his glory. We're called to reflect his glory. Now this point is now obvious from this passage. In fact, there's really no one in this chapter who even comes close to resembling the character of God here. But I want you all to know that it's possible to see the glory of God even in the midst of such darkness. So I want to point out just a couple examples of darkness here that I've already mentioned before, but I want to talk about some more. First is this, the whole Shechem's rape of Dinah. You see, after the rape, Shechem and Hamer, they try to make marriage arrangements, didn't they? And this is the scary part. Because there was no hint whatsoever of any remorse. They approached the father of the victim as if what just had occurred was a completely normal thing. There was no apology. There was no repentance. This is just another day in Shechem. Another day of business as usual. Not only that, but in this chapter we see how the people of God were perhaps maybe even more wicked than the people of Shechem. So get this in verse 1. We're told that Dinah was the daughter of Leah, right? In other words, Leah was the one who was never loved by her husband Jacob. And apparently Dinah, and apparently Dinah was just her mother's daughter. And so Jacob didn't really care much about her. And so after the horrible event of Dinah getting raped and getting defiled, where was Jacob's outrage? Where was his outrage? Where was his call for his men to pick up the swords and to exact revenge on these people? What kind of father would not seek any type of justice? You know what God wants from his men? God wants his men to protect and to provide for their children. He wants his men to represent God to their children in such a way that when children, when our kids grow up, they view God and they see security, they see love, they see acceptance, and they see confidence in God. God wants his people to reflect his perfect love. But Jacob, man, in the midst of all that, when he could have, he didn't. He failed miserably. And so the ruthless sons of Jacob, they schemed to destroy everyone. And here's the, here's, the, here's the bad thing about what they've done, aside from scheming and all that. They used the cover-up of a sacred rite of circumcision for their wicked act. You know what circumcision was? It was, a, it was a sign of the removal of sin. It was a sign that could even be applied to non-Jewish people or Gentiles and bring them into the united covenant of God. But the sons of Jacob, they distorted the sacred act and they attempted to bring a union of two people groups that God clearly was against. But not only did they slaughter every guy in town, but then to make things worse, they plundered the victims' homes. They took the flocks. They took the herds. They took the wealth. They took the treasures. They took, not only that, but they took the men's wives. And they took their children and made them their slaves. 
And in all this, where was Jacob? Was he trying to pacify his son's anger? Was he trying to bring order and, and, and law here? No, there's nothing from him. There was no moral outrage. He wasn't saying, guys, this is wrong. What are you guys thinking? Let's stop this. Let's repent. Let's change. No, only thing that we see from him and his reaction was a selfish concern for his own hide. He says, man, I'm going to get in trouble I'm going to get in trouble from the parasites, from the Canaanites, from the, from the people of this land because of what you guys are doing. Let me say this. How will the world ever see the glory of God if even his own people choose to reflect darkness rather than light? That we choose to reflect wickedness rather than love and condemnation rather than grace. Man, how many times have we messed up how many times did God give us an opportunity to reflect his glory and instead we ended up looking just like the world, responding just like the world, living and saying and doing as the world does. But folks, here's some good news. Life in this world may be dark for you today. You're probably going through a really tough time. But I want you guys to know from what we know in this passage is this. God has not left your darkness. He has not left your darkness. Why? Because we have to remember this. God's son became flesh and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us and the world saw his glory. Jesus is the light of the world and to see Jesus is to see God. You see, it's more than simply being nice to people around us. It's more than just being charitable and loving. No. If we want people to see the glory of God, they can only do so by looking into the face of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. So I want to say this, and I end with this soon. It's not about being a considerate and tolerant Christian to others that will separate us from the world. It's about pointing those around us to Christ. It's about directing them to Christ who is the hope of the world. It's our job to say, he is the prince of peace that you're looking for. He is the hope of glory. He is the one who is the giver of the spirit who will make all things new in your life. You see, separation from the world is not, and I want you to hear me out well with this. Separation from the world isn't just about less of the world. It is more about more of Christ. You get that? Separation from the world is not just less of the world, it's more of Christ in your life because it is possible to have less of the world and also less of Christ. But don't make that mistake. My encouragement to you all is this. Yes, separate yourself from the allure of the world and at the same time reflect God's glory. That's our lesson for today. But you have to understand that can only be done as you draw nearer to Jesus. That's it. To be the glory of God and to shine his mightiness and his graciousness and his love to people. It's not done with your works or your dance or by your great radiant smile. It's simply by your knowing and your submission and your love for Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
This is a difficult passage. Because how many of us are so just in love with the world? We're just so caught up in the current of the world's trends and what they say is hot, what they say is not, what they say is in, and what they say is out. And man, that temptation to, to compromise is there. When your boss says, hey, let's go to happy hour, let's get smashed. When your girlfriend of several years says, you know what? Maybe, yeah, so we're not married, but you know what? I love you and you love me, so let's, let's sleep together. When in D.C. you're walking around and you see just people getting high, Temptations everywhere. And we don't want to get legalistic because the moment that we start saying, well, this is wrong, this is right, and this is you know, unacceptable, all this stuff, like, where, does this, where does it end? Look, there are obviously obvious boundaries and lines that the Lord pronounces in his word and that I think are, are things that he's placed in our hearts and our minds. But ultimately, it's this. If you want to be separate from the world, that simply means you need to have more of Jesus. That is it. Do you have more of Christ in your life? Are you pursuing the things of Christ in your life? Are you, or are you just hoping that somehow through osmosis, like right now, that you'll just become holier? Friends, brothers and sisters, don't you know that Christ has given us a divine responsibility to pursue him. These are called spiritual disciplines. Yeah, it may sound legalistic, but they're not because this is what will enhance what you already have if you are a follower of Christ. If God is in you, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, what are you doing? Are you suffocating him by indulging in the world or are you feeding into him by indulging more of the Word of God? Are you feasting in the Word of God? Are you feasting in community here? Are you feasting during worship? Maybe it's not even about less of the world. It's simply just ask yourself this, and this is what we'll end with our prayer, okay? I'll give you a minute to do this. This is Jesus, I want more of you. Every part of my life, my work, my school, my family, as a father, as a mother, as a son, as a daughter, as a sibling, as a coworker, as a student, whatever it is, I want more of you. Okay, let's take a moment and pray.